This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. The young shining cuckoo is fed by its foster parents on insects and spiders. But the korimako, or bellbird, has a much more interesting diet of nectar. It's been something of a radio personality and has sung on shortwave radio to Australia and the Pacific nations for 30 years. However, the early recordings failed to reflect the versatility of the bellbird, with its wide variety of liquid notes and artistically placed clicks and bell-like sounds. It's not surprising that Maori mythology describes Korimako, the bellbird, as the messenger of Tane, sent to herald the coming of the sun. Community or chaos, we can construct and nurture community or fall into chaos. Over the next hour, Marvin Hubbard hosts conversations toward creating a fairer, more equal society. Community or Chaos is made possible with the support of Quakers Aotearoa. You'll find them online at quaker.org.nz. Good morning, friends. Today we have Professor Susan Comdrack. She's a New Zealand engineer, and she's the first woman appointed full professor at engineering at the University of Canterbury. She teaches and researches in the field of energy transition engineering. She is a member of the Upper North Island Supply Chain Strategy Working Group. She was in the 2021 New Year's Honors List, and she was appointed honorary member of the New Zealand Order of Merit for serving sustainability research and engineering. She is currently professor and chair of energy transition at Harriet Watt University in Edinburgh, Scotland. Susan, what led you to, briefly led you to choose a career in engineering? Right. So this was back in the 80s. I think what really drove me is that I wanted things to work right. I wanted, I, I really wanted to see the end to the, the horrible um, environmental disasters that we were seeing. Uh, believe it or not, back in the 80s, we already knew what global warming was and knew it was a problem and we, we knew yeah. we had an energy problem. And so the, the things that were involved in that were engineered systems. So I thought um, I want to work on sustainable engineering um, and sustainable energy. So of course that's what you would go into. Of course that um, turned out to be quite a correct choice. I mean, a very useful choice for New Zealand, even if they didn't make full use of it. Briefly, could you tell us why you moved from Canterbury University to Harriet Watt University in Scotland? Right. Well, firstly, I got my um, degrees and did all my studies and uh, my PhD in the United States, where I'm from, in Colorado. Um, And I decided to move to New Zealand um, because in the United States, the ideas about energy were very limited. They were really only looking at fun things like hydrogen and um, carbon capture and algae and things like that. And I wanted to look at whole energy systems and really understand how energy um, benefits our our lives and 
therefore, how we can manage using energy um, to not destroy our planet. And there just wasn't much of that going on in the U.S. So I thought I could I could use the academic freedom in New Zealand to study that. And that's what we did. We did a lot of research just asking that question. How do we meet our needs, but not um, make a big mess and leave it to somebody else? So 20 years of that research at Canterbury University um, had a very successful career and rose to full professor, like you said, but then um, the research funding sort of all log jammed into just one thing really it was really focused on hydrogen and that, that's why i left the us because i wanted to to work more on the okay how do we actually transition um, and i had really spearheaded this field of transition engineering and harriet walt university came to me and said we have a 16 and a half million pound research center that we want you to set up and run um, to study exactly that, how how our um, local communities, regional communities, and a whole country like Scotland going to achieve net zero carbon within 10 years. And I thought, well, that's a good question. <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's why I went. Okay. Actually, this leads to the next question because I thought we'd talk about TY Point, Alan and Smelter. Is importing uh, Bootex from Australia and then using it, using New Zealand's heavily subsidized electricity to turn it into aluminium. Is that a good use of our energy and electricity? All right. Well, um, this is a thing that happens around the world. There, There's a country where bauxite um, mineral has been formed, right? But that location is very seldom in a place with enough electricity to refine the bauxite into aluminum. So that the bauxite's the aluminum oxide ore. So the bauxite gets put into giant ships and shipped around the world. And so, um, you know, Iceland has bauxite um, uh, refining and so do we, um, and, and other places where you can build a big geothermal or a hydro dam. All right, so that it, it, we're not unique in that, um, and that area is close enough to Australia that you can do that. Now, the Manapuri power station that, that feeds the TY point, um, is that ours, right? That, that's a good question. Uh, we, you know, ours as in the people of New Zealand, or was it actually built for that, that purpose? Um, did it subsidize the Australian money-making operation, um, Rio Tinto as it is now? Well, um, those are things that when the government looks at those, it says, well, the payback to New Zealand is going to recover the costs that we spend in putting in the infrastructure, um, the jobs that it creates, the, um, those sort of things are going to be positives, so they go against the, the outlays that we, that we make. Now, I don't know that they were counting on the um, the other environmental pollutions and things um, that came about, but, um, you know, industrial development is always seen by a government as a good thing. Now, that electricity is generating aluminum a good use of electricity. Well, of course it is. I mean, aluminum is a is a unbelievably useful material. And once you refine it, it is one of the most recyclable metals that we have. So it is a very useful um, material. Um, I, I don't know that using that electricity for that aluminum has hurt the rest of New Zealand. 
It has definitely um, damaged the river, um, but it also did spur the um, the environmental movement in New Zealand. So, um, you know, pluses and minuses everywhere. I don't know if that answers the question, but it's a complex question, I guess. I guess should we, we continue with using it for making aluminium, or should we... It should be part of our transition to um, electricity for for transport and other activities that now use coal and oil. Right. right. Well, um, you know, a country can always kick a large industry out of its country if it wants. That usually takes a bit of work, though, because. Uh, you know, um, unless that that uh, industry is really um, a curse, it's usually better to just require that industry to behave better um, and go ahead and stay in the country. Mm-hmm. So again, the use of the word we, I think, is, is something we have to ponder um, because a company um, named Meridian Energy actually owns that electricity. Mm-hmm. And we would have to buy it from them. So it is not ours, right? <laughs> is that part of the problem? The oh, fact well, that, we, it, you know. <laughs> that we privatized electricity throughout New Zealand, put it on a commercial basis, and got rid of people that might have created jobs like the um, Ministry of Works? Well, I tell you, you can definitely have a much more holistic view of things if the government is running your infrastructure and um, services like power generation um, for the good of the people and for um, wide ranging benefits in the economy. Um, You know, I, I think it would be worth a really serious study to look at the history of Ministry of Works, um, how it serves the people and the economy and, um, what the decisions to break up to um, to privatize, you know, really, let's be honest about how that's gone, because I I think people wouldn't be confused that we shouldn't privatize our roads, that we shouldn't privatize our health care, that we shouldn't privatize our water supplies. Um, and all of those are sort of core necessities of life for people. And, and is electricity in that same basket? Um, well, really makes you want to think about it. So maybe right now is the time for thinking, really hard thinking. If you're a poor family who uh, depends on electricity for heat and things like that, they might have a, a particular view of it. Yeah, and I think you would definitely have to reform the uh, or undo the sale of those companies and those assets um, to into private hands because private enterprise requires um, shareholder returns. They, they, they require that the, the purpose of that enterprise is to extract wealth. Um, and so they don't really care about poor people trying to heat their homes. That's not their problem. That is not their purpose. Well, isn't that part um, of our so problem? It is our problem. And so it, it you know, um, who knows exactly what the cost of electricity would be if you reformed that market system um, to make it a public service uh, utility. 
Um, my guess is it would be quite a lot lower if, 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 if um, the end-use behavior of the um, of people using the electricity fit within the low cost generation that we've got. The, the gas and the coal is not low cost, and yet that is what has to be brought on to meet those peak winter demands. So if we could do a little bit of insulating, um, we might be able to get those costs down, and then we could heat our homes for much lower cost. Well, it seems to me you could combine those if you were do- working oh, yeah. in a public way instead of a, instead of a, an outfit where you must make a profit. Well, I tell you, this is this is the field of transition engineering is um, looking honestly at where we've been, looking very honestly at the outcomes which we are now um, observing and then saying, well, what is the actual essential needs, the essential activities and the essential values that we share? And is there a more efficient and more fair way to achieve those outcomes rather than having a doctrine um, of the way that a market economics is supposed to work um, and sort of um, not looking at the evidence when it's not working. Is that part of the problem is that people were uh, so into the present doctrine, even if they have questions about it, neoliberalism seems to be embedded in the economic system, that we're finding it difficult to question it and to um, think of different ways of doing it, doing our um, production of public goods, such as electricity. Right. Mm. Well, there's, there's uh, again, why I really like to look at, at the historical developments that have occurred is that um, there are these transitional points in time where uh, a new idea springs up and usually that idea has been around but it springs into being because of leadership so we had leadership um around the neoliberal economics you had it since the 1950s yes but it really sprang up in the reagan thatcher era era where it, it sort of took over and that required um the kind of uh conversion right the sort of belief uh aggregation and that requires somebody to champion those things because really it it, um these are basically belief systems and then we look at the data that fit our beliefs and that sort of thing um so we can always change that um and uh, i think it's kate raworth who says we need to design a different economy and that sounds a little funny but that's really what she's talking about is, is um, you know, setting up a set of rules that we're going to follow and maybe having a data-driven version of, of the, the economics um, so that we can keep track of what's going on and correct when things mm-hmm. get out of hand. That would be good. Some people could claim that uh, neoliberal economic systems actually been successful because it's redistributed wealth particularly in the early stages, from the many to the few. And so the people who set it up may feel like it's been beneficial. Yeah, it sure has. Uh, So it's concentrated wealth and power, um, and so that keeps happening. (laughs) Yeah, it's uh, self-perpetuating, that's for sure. Um, So 
what does a change look like when we um, when we correct that? Well, again, we can look at, at history and we can think about um, designing those changes. And um, I think now we have a tool which we, we haven't had before, which is the mathematics and the computers to really test out ways that things um, would work if you change some rules. So maybe it's time for um, some really honest research to be looking into this. And the, um, I think it's New Zealand Policy Institute in Wellington. They've got some folks who, who like to, to um, look honestly at the um, implications of the economics that we're currently um, believing in and trying out different things. So the, let's, ha let's have a go. <laughs> one of the things we've been talking about, um, for instance, people have been questioning whether we're subsidizing TY point too much. But if we, if TY point closed down, is hydrogen the answer to our transport problems? Is this the, uh, the silver bullet? <laughs> okay, this is a funny one because we did mention that Meridian Energy that owns the Manapuri power plant um, and the bulk of the South Island generation um, that there are a for-profit entity, yes? And so they're selling power um, at a low price to TY, but they're selling a lot of it. And so, so they, they're doing fine because they definitely are getting a return on the investment that the rest of us made. <laughs> All right. Um, now, if TY Point was to shut down, um, there isn't a lot of capacity to get that power into the rest of the grid. So there's um, either the water gets to go back down the river um, or a bit more grid is built. If you look at shareholder investment and the shareholders thinking, okay, what am I going to earn on my shares next year? And they see, well, if um, TransPower builds the transmission down to Manapuri to get that, that power out, especially to the North Island, then TransPower is going to clip the ticket and they're going to be doing fine. But um, the rest of the power price, the way that the market works, the power price will go down significantly because we won't need the gas generation. And so um, I'm looking at my shares in Meridian and going, ooh, I might want to get out of that. <laughs> And so what you might see is a company like Meridian and other electricity generators saying, oh, no, 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 that, that power's not gonna turn up in the market. What are you kidding? Because we need to build a hydrogen plant and just take that power and offshore it. Get it out of here. <laughs> is this a good argument for no. <laughs> uh, why we shouldn't necessarily be allowing private companies to set policies that affect our environment, affect how we deal with climate change, affect our transportation? Oh, I tell you, um, <laughs> the, you, you have to have very, um, very good regulation. You have to have strong government and strong regulation in order to have a free market system. Um, and we are seeing now a free market system with a government that um, is under a lot of influence from that, from, from the powerful in that system. Um, so if we are going to put our energy into anything, it might be um, trying to see what it looks like to have a transition to a value-based 
um, regulation and, and, and economy. And I, I don't know that that would happen from the top down. The kind of leadership that would take would be monumental. Um, but it might happen um, locally. And then that can seed the understanding of how um, a fair and um, just and equitable economic system works, um, you know, with well-regulated utilities and um, and well-regulated um, enterprise. So that um, that's sort of what we're working on is how to combine the energy infrastructure, public services, and governance and regulation um, into a rather designed and modeled framework so that the whole community can understand the different options and how they how they could play out. So maybe maybe we'll bring that back to New Zealand at some point and, and give it a try. I think New Zealanders at the local level could probably govern themselves. Okay, this is a probably good time for a music break. Here I am, one more time In light of this setting sun Shadows move silently Manifest my heaving breath And will we make it all? Will it break us all? Will it carry us away? Carry us away. I look around, I see our dreams, children laughing so beautiful. Just call in the distance and curtain falls and will we make it all? Will it break us all? Will it carry us away? Carry us away. Flowers just fragrant love. Seen holy cities, seen open minds. Beach forest dreamed of golden pond. And will we make it all? Will it break us all? Will it carry us away? Grace, 
So much hope, so little time. So here I stand upon this hill, yearning for the dawn, the cold, dawn to call for those who will come. Talking with uh, Professor Susan Con, Drake, Condike, sorry, <laughs> and we're talking about the use of energy and transition in order to adopt to climate change and also helpfully mitigate climate change. And you can podcast this by going to oar.org.nz and then going to. Uh, podcast and then going to community or chaos. Well, Susan, what kinds of infrastructure do we need to both mitigate climate change and adapt to climate change? Right. Um, I think infrastructure, um, anybody who's thought about countries that don't have very good infrastructure, who's studied history, um, knows just how important infrastructure is. So in New Zealand, the ports were probably the first really key infrastructure because then you can connect um, you know, places to each other and to the rest of the world. Um, then you go inland from there into the hinterland and the rail is the next big piece of infrastructure. Um, and as we start to get tired of living in our own um, effluent, then the sewers and waters, the three waters become really important. Um, so when we're talking about infrastructure, I know most people sort of jump to roads and bridges, but those are in fact um, the most Johnny-come-lately of infrastructure and probably the most, or I would have to say the least future-proof. So what kind of infrastructure are we looking at for the long term? What should we be investing in now? Um, and I'm pretty sure it's stuff that will be of use from now into the future, as long as you can possibly think and imagine. And that is again, our ports. And those ports are intersecting with the ocean. So the engineering, re-engineering of ports so that um, they can deal with sea level rise and with stronger storms um, is gonna be important. Our infrastructure of our um, sewer systems are all very vulnerable to the sea level rise. So we're gonna have to rethink those. Um, our water systems, oh, the, the, the droughts, what in the world are you going to do about droughts? So you have to start thinking about reservoirs and water storage um, and uh, water frugality. So um, I think we're going to have to rethink the use of water in agriculture for things like dairy. It's just too much. 
Um, so just sort of dialing that back. And then the rail network, the rail network in New Zealand has to be brought up to world class and it has to um, be built in a way that it'll last for hundreds of years. And then I think we'll be kind of set if we can do all those things. How do you see New Zealand's rail structure? All right. Um, That's like difficult. I said, the ports are key. The, the ports are key because we do have the, um, the marine environment all around the country. You can get to almost every place in the country um, uh, via water which isn't a surprise because that's how the place was was organized in the first place. But then the um, hinterland and access to productive land and forests and, um, and uh, lakes, things like that. Um, the electric rail is the way that will always work. All right, so uh, really understanding that an investment now in another road or a wider road um, is just really not looking forward at all. Whereas investments in, in good um, rail um, that can usually be electrified, um, it would be better to do it now, I suppose, and just get on with it. But um, yeah, okay, the way I look at things is not, again, dogmatically saying a certain thing is good um, or a certain thing is bad but saying, okay, what do we really need to do? We have to connect our productive, our primary production to our population and to markets. That is what you have to do. That has, that, that's been essential since forever. Do we need, and, yeah, go ahead. Hmm? Sorry. Well, um, go ahead. Yeah, and we have to now start looking at building what isn't gonna require oil to run. So um, I know that this generation that is now making those decisions doesn't have that experience of not having low cost oil to run the economy on. But my granddaughter will have that experience. That will be her life. So I am willing to gift to her the things that she needs for her life. The, the, we've known about this, of course, for, for some time. You mentioned, well, they were talking about we realize about climate, at least I interviewed a physicist on sea ice um, and taking measuring sea ice in the Antarctic oh, 20 years ago. And so we'd known about climate change for a long time that was coming. Do we need it to have an organization not necessarily with the same name, but something that fills the role of the minister works, where they can plan ahead for the needs of, and unite the kinds of things we need to do. I and would say that wouldn't be the worst idea ever. <laughs> if we had such a thing, would you be willing to work at it? Oh, um, yeah, well, I, I know lots of, um, lots of people who would, I mean, we've got a pretty inefficient way of doing things now. If um, we also need, man, you know what? It's really mission critical right now to get the experience of the folks who are right now on the cusp of retiring, um, to get their experience into the um, into the place where it needs to be. You mean we've got people that actually folks. remember public service? 
Yes. <laughs> well, people who, um, okay, the neoliberal economics cut out um, too much of the apprenticeships. And so we now need to sort of retroactively make sure that the, um, the knowledge isn't lost. Um, and so maybe a maybe the a Ministry of Works would be a way to do that to accomplish um, a thing that is really critically important. Why do you think this isn't talked about more openly? Um, okay. Um, what I have found, you, you said, you know, we've known for 50 years. Well, okay, the Mauna Loa Observatory in Hawaii was built to keep an eye on the CO2 concentration in the air because they knew it was a problem. That was in 1959. <laughs> so, yes, um, we've known for a long time, obviously. Um, of course, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, we did not know what to do about this. Right? Um, and what I would say is my 20 years of research, that's what I've been working on, is what do we do about this? Um, so while we haven't had action that we might have liked to have seen, um, it, we haven't known what to do. And I would say right now around the world, we can expect a convergence of people like me who have been working on figuring out what are we going to do. Um, and now, it would be very good for our leadership to understand that this is a, um, that, that transition engineering, actually making these changes, um, is a new discipline. It needs to be learned quickly. It needs to be, um, uh, it needs to become what we're good at. And that would be great to have that kind of leadership. Um, and like we, we've been talking about a, a ministry of work sort of thing. Sure, that could be a way um, to really, really capture um, the existing knowledge start building the new ways of working through change and the new ways of understanding economic value and social value and environmental value. One of the sad things, I think, is for the first time in a long time, we have a, a political leader who had the influence and public support to bring about a, quite a bit of change in our direction. Uh, do you remember this story of the talents in the Bible? How people wasted, they were given their talents and they, mm. they wasted them? Yeah. Well, our, our, our politic, present political leader was given talents and public support. And to some extent, she's wasted them. Why? Hmm. I think there again, I I think the intention was there. So I don't think I don't think it was a false intention or anything. But when you say, I know we need to take action, right? I know we need to do something, and you look up and the slate of possibilities for actions you can take looks pretty blank, um, and the future looks pretty bleak then you're in a phase where you are susceptible to con men, where you, you are susceptible to nonsense. And the nonsense merchants can start really making their profits. So this phase isn't a surprise. The next phase is where, like I said, there's a convergence 
of people who really do know um, what we should be getting onto, and they start speaking honestly about that. So we've had had sort of a, a ten year run almost of of um, <laughs> of oh well we'll try this or we'll do that. You, you just sort of we have a solution. Well, no, you don't. You have to change what you're doing, and that's different from having a solution. So we don't have to change what we're doing. Um, but I, I think it's that time now. When you need infrastructure, does it is it expedient to go into debt or raise taxes to build the infrastructure? that we'll need in the future? Or is there better to wait until we can afford to pay for what we need to build, even if that takes generations? <laughs> okay, if, if you don't have good infrastructure, you'll never be able to afford to pay for good infrastructure. Now, what you may be able to afford to pay for is modest, but very good functional infrastructure that provides services to everybody. So the answer to your question is no, we must go and build infrastructure right now. And that means going into debt and paying it off, um, if you will. Um, don't go into debt to Australian banks though, that might not be a good idea. Um, but, absolutely huge but here, you have to be right. <laughs> Just building infrastructure for infrastructure's sake will completely sink the economy, it will sink our society. Yes. Because, when we build infrastructure, what it must do is support well-being and enterprise. And so building the wrong infrastructure is, is just sinking the ship. It is not good. So must be very careful right now about what we think infrastructure is. It isn't just a big spend. It is the, it's like what you call it, laser focused um, uh, microsurgery version of infrastructure. <laughs> Are there enough people in New Zealand now who are aware of the problem and have some of the uh, knowledge of need to change what we're doing for to base a change on? Okay, well, the first thing you need is the people who understand the existing systems and how to make them work. So by and large, New Zealand still has that. Like I said, we are in a position where we must make sure that the experienced and knowledgeable um, folks, especially our, our engineers, pass on and tutor and apprentice younger people um, we've got to make sure not to have a brain drain. That would be good. So you've got to have your talent in place. Um, then we have to, I think you said boldness and imagination. Um, I think that would be good with accurate tools. So the transition engineering approach, which which is what I'm, I'm doing now, um, is a way to marry up uh, in imagination and innovation with absolutely honest engineering. <laughs> Do you so it is not a time to fool ourselves, that's for sure. Do you think that education is part of our infrastructure? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, a country that doesn't have good education just doesn't have a hope. So our education needs to be appropriate. We, we need 
to have education for the the things we need um and and we have to have liberal education because we have to have people who can think people who understand history people who can communicate um and yeah no our education is absolutely central so well okay i would say that wouldn't i <laughs> if the whole so-called higher education is um something you have to pay for and get loans on is that the best way to get the kind of education we need the kind of education as you say liberal arts and engineering and science but isn't there a tendency if you have to pay for your education to want to get the education that you think will give you the best way to pay for that education when you get out. For instance, you might go into finance instead of um, teaching, or you might go into um, law instead of um, engineering. Mm. Should What do you think about countries like Finland and other European, not necessarily rich, Finland's not a rich country in Europe standards. It's wealthy compared to New Zealand because of what they, partly because of their education, but they don't have the resources that Norway has or Germany. Yet they've got a really excellent education system. And it's not free because the taxpayers pay for it. But nobody's stopped from using it because they can't afford it. And yeah. we used to bond teachers and people we needed and give them free, free education. Should we relook at how education is provided? Well, that would be a great redesign project because the, the reason that people now have to pay for it and all that is, of course, the market economic theory that, um, you know, let the market decide, right? <laughs> no, but does that, well, that provide and, the best education that we need for the future? Well, um, I think there's there's places that are worse than New Zealand, like America. Sure. Yeah. You know, where people are essentially mortgage slaves for the rest of their lives to get a degree to teach first grade. That's just insane. Um, but you would like to think, well, couldn't we sit down and actually design a system um, as opposed to just throw it open and say, ah, we, we, we absolve ourselves of responsibility for doing this right because the market will figure it out. And when you say the market, I think you need to do the, uh, you know, cross yourself because <laughs> you're, you're, you're talking belief here instead of, uh, you know, faith-based economics instead of um, evidence-based. So if you, um, you know, it, it would be a great exercise and I think it would be a fun thing to have uh, a project in New Zealand where you would have um, high school um, students do, you know, like mock parliament, but they're designing um, the education fee system. They could do it. Can you... well, it seems fair. You know? okay. How would it work? Just design it. Take it to the prime minister. See if we can get a change. Can you talk about the different forms of transportation? we need, for instance, public versus private motor cars. All right. Um, if you think of um, activity, transport activity systems, 
So everybody has to have a place where they spend the night, right? It's called home. Um, we sleep deeply and therefore we need a secure, safe place to sleep at night. Um, so you've got home, that's one location, and then you've got your activity system. So your work, your school, your, your social activities, um, shopping. All right, if, if you design and plan your place where this is all happening for private motor cars, then it is very difficult to serve it any other way. Of course, that means what we are looking at now is the redesign, the repurposing, the retrofitting of our existing motor car based world for a world where motor cars are not required. And in that world, there will be some public transportation, but it is no longer public transportation trying to be cars. It'll be a urban form that is well served by public transportation and by um, humans moving themselves. So that it, it's not a stretch for people to understand what that would look like. Where the challenge comes in is looking out your own door at your own driveway and your street and how far it is to anywhere you go and think, yeah, but I don't know how I would get there without my car. Well, we're not talking about without your car. We're talking about um, essentially redeveloping our, our urban form and the way we fit into it. There's a lot more to it than just infrastructure. There is the fit within the infrastructure, the self-organizing of those um, of those activity systems that uh, is new stuff. You know, in 20 years it'll be normal though, just the way we do it. But right now we're at this at this edge of um, really new things and doing things in new ways. Does New Zealand have? This will be the last question. Okay. Does New Zealand have the intelligence and and will or boldness to do its part to mitigate and adapt to climate change. Uh, you must um, think it does because you moved here. I did, and then I left. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, I, I, I didn't. I didn't. Uh, I didn't sell up my house, though. I plan to. I plan to be back. So, um, does New Zealand have the intelligence? Um, that's kind of a loaded question because there's no reason why New Zealand wouldn't have the intelligence. You you would have to, what, go down Dumb Street or something. <laughs> Do we also have the imagination? <laughs> um, imagination, you know, we're, we're sort of um, where neoliberal capitalism has taken us, um, has been kind of a numbing of the things that make us curious and thoughtful and um, engaged. And so um, making sure that we have creative people helping others who might have gone a bit farther down the down the you know mind numbing route. Um, you know, as long as we have a few, uh, and I'm pretty sure just from my study of history that this is how um, social and technological change happens. It isn't that everyone has to be brilliant. It's that you have to have the agents of change, the catalysts, um, and and society has to have the freedom to be able to adapt. So, you know, not locking ourselves into um, our own belief systems, making sure that we keep an open mind, that we test out things with facts, um, that we um, are as honest as we can possibly be. We, we, we do have huge challenges in front of us, 
Um, but I don't think it's necessarily, you know, I wouldn't beat up on the people of New Zealand <laughs> for overintelligence or anything because the, the requisite um, capabilities are there. Um, they do need to step up and get woken up and become active and start working. So the good news is that the Global Association for Transition Engineering um, has 120 members in New Zealand, the highest number of transition engineers in any country. So maybe it starts there. Turn loose the transition engineers. Get on with it. Okay, thanks a lot for coming on. I hope to talk with you again sometime. Sure, I enjoyed it. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.